lost and we know it Just going through the motions Lord, I need some help right now We were reckless and we owned it No check on our impulses Tell me, are we falling down? We're back with another news update focused on the recent release of the names of businesses that received a loan from the Payment Protection Program from the U.S. federal government, which is popularly known as PPP loans. And our reporting this week is focusing on the art institutions and galleries that benefited from the program. I'm Harag Bartanyan, the host of the Hyperallergic Podcast. I'm joined this week by news editor Jasmine Weber in Los Angeles and reporter Valentina Delicia, who's back in New York. And Jasmine will get us up to speed. So this week in the art world and outside of it, what so many people have had their eye on is the release of the businesses across the United States that received payment protection program loans. These loans are in many cases forgivable, some of which are in the millions of dollars going towards businesses who are trying to retain their employees during the crisis. Obviously, we've seen that we have extremely high levels of unemployment in the country right now as people are laid off, furloughed, and are no longer able to work, whether or not that's because their company no longer has the funds or whether or not it's because it's been closed temporarily to promote social distancing. So months after the PPP loans were disseminated, we've now finally been able to parse through the names of these businesses that have received them, and many of which are from the art world. So two of our staff reporters, Hakeem Bashara and Valentina Delicia, along with yourself, Frog, have really dug into this list and, and provided our readers with some of the names of the institutions right here in New York that received loans, some of which were small in the couple of hundreds of thousands of dollars, which on the scale of a major museum wouldn't necessarily cover too high of a percentage of their annual cost. But we also saw a number of galleries receiving millions of dollars. So I'll actually pass this over to Valentina who can speak a little bit about her research in the process of putting together this article, speaking about institutions like Art Forum and ArtNet, who did receive large loans and who are commercial entities. Thanks, Jasmine. It was really interesting to report on this, just seeing what institutions got the loans and also what they did with them. And, you know, to the extent that we know how they either retained or didn't retain staff in the following months. So just because you brought up publications, I think it's worth mentioning Art Forum and Book Forum, which are listed as one entity um, on the data provided by the Small Business Administration, got a loan in the range of 350000 to $1 million. And I'll add here that the Small Business Administration provides loan ranges. We did reach out to a number of institutions to confirm exact loan numbers and Some of them got back to us and some of them didn't. But in general, it's interesting seeing the ranges and and what amount of money institutions were applying for and did receive. And then, of course, you mentioned Artnet, which is listed as Artnet Worldwide Corporation and appears to be the same as the company that's publicly traded, received between one to two million dollars. Those loans were not meant to be for publicly traded companies. The government specifically did say later that um, that companies that 
were public and that had other sources of income shouldn't be applying for these loans and ask that they return them, which some bigger companies that we know of outside the art world did. Then in terms of institutions, nonprofits, and museums, I think it's notable to mention a couple of museums that we've seen in the last few weeks implement second waves of layoffs. We saw a lot of furloughs and layoffs at the beginning of the coronavirus outbreak in the spring. And there's some speculation that because these PPP loans were meant to allow institutions to hold on to workers, and in fact, in order for the loans to be forgivable, you did have to use the money for eligible expenses like retaining staff. Some people are thinking that the second way of layoffs is coincidentally timed with the end of these loan periods. So institutions were able to use the loan, but as soon as that loan period kind of ran out, we did see a new waves of layoffs. So some examples of that, our colleague Hakeem Bishar reported on layoffs at the Brooklyn Museum, which laid off 26 full-time and three part-time employees at the end of June after receiving a PPP loan of $4.5 million, which Uh, That was one case in which they were able to confirm the exact loan amount. For the new museum in New York City as well, they've let go 18 full and part-time staff out of 41 workers that they had furloughed since the spring um, after receiving a PPP loan that we know is in the range of one to two million. And then, of course, the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, where we've seen a number of controversies in the last couple of weeks laid off 131 on-call employees and announced plans to furlough another 200 uh, in the spring. And then recently, it has announced that it will lay off or reduce the work schedule of another additional 55 of its employees. Even though it did get a PPP loan of $6.2 million, it continues to announce an $18 million deficit for the fiscal year. All of this due to the coronavirus pandemic. Yeah. I just um, want to so jump in for a second, Valentina, if that's all right, yeah. just to kind of give people a sense of context. Like, you know, we're not seeing the Museum of Modern Art, the Met, and some of these other institutions on this list, because of course, to apply for a PPP loan, which was through the Small Business Administration, you had to have 500 employees or less. So just to give people right. a sense of context. So we're talking about organizations that, you know, are large, in our world, but are considered small businesses according to the criteria the government put forth. Absolutely. I think that's a really great point. Also worth mentioning that through the CARES Act, the National Endowment for the Humanities and the National Endowment for the Arts respectively got $75 million each, which is really just a drop in the bucket given the number of institutions that will need so much financial help during the pandemic. But some of that grant money we know will be funneled to larger institutions like the Met. Of course, those are grants, not forgivable loans. So totally different, but we do have different kinds of aid that we're taking into consideration. Oh, absolutely. I think one of the issues that I'd love to also sort of bring up is the fact how many large blue chip galleries received big loans and multiple big loans. That was the thing that took me aback where Pace, three entities connected to Pace, all got loans separately while Hauser and Wirth, two separate Hauser and Wirth, you know, gallery entities received loans, uh, one in Los Angeles, one here in New York. You know, and and it really makes me wonder, like, why are we subsidizing luxury industries and particularly galleries that are selling works in the six or seven digits regularly? And why is the public subsidizing and essentially these luxury businesses? It does concern me. I have to say, as someone who works in this field, it does make me wonder 
you know, what's going on and whether that money wouldn't have been better spent with small galleries that were, as we've reported before, already were disadvantaged by the system because many of them did not necessarily have staff, you know, paid as staff and they were often contractors and other things. And, you know, it really didn't allow those smaller galleries that needed the money more support. And that really, I think, was a missed opportunity. And it does make me think about the fact that increasingly, particularly with this sort of culture of inequality we've been addressing, how, you know, this is, this is a little bit of a class war where like the wealthy are getting wealthier and the people who couldn't, you know, and I'll, and I want to share a story of how we got a loan just because I think it's, it just shows you how the system was really dysfunctional in many ways. You know, Viken, our publisher, is, you know, he's, uh, he's an anxious person, just like many of us are, in terms of making sure all the money is paid out and all the different issues are, are dealt with. And um, our, the bank that we deal with, we spoke to them and mentioned we're applying and they, you know, they seem to be very open to helping us in any way they could. But then Viken in, you know, the reality, because, you know, every business that we often, small businesses that are actually small businesses needed this money to survive a few months. Um, And they said, we'll let you know when you can apply. And instead of waiting for them to let us know, Viken checked the website probably two, three times a day until all of a sudden he realized on one Sunday night, the form was open to apply. And no one told him. And believe it or not, he applied that night within a couple of hours. He, you know, he decided, I'm just going to do this on a Sunday night. And then we were notified by our bank on Wednesday that we could apply. And if we had waited that long, I mean, we certainly wouldn't have gotten through the first wave of PPP loans. And who knows if we would have even received the second to tell you how dysfunctional this system is. That's honestly, it's super interesting to hear. I think just in light of what you're talking about, about the inconsistencies in the system, I think one one point worth mentioning, Hog, is when we first looked at this data, there's a column on the spreadsheet provided by the Small Business Administration that lists number of jobs retained by that organization. And sometimes it can be really jarring because you've seen some organizations getting a lot of money and that column listing zero jobs retained. And some uh, news reporting that we've seen lately, like from the Chicago Tribune, are saying that those numbers are wrong because of inconsistent data reporting. So I think we all need to keep an eye on on that data and just it speaks a lot to how inconsistent the system has been across the board. That's a really good point. So now, what do you think the impact of the PPP loans and this sort of like these types of things? Because, you know, I, I mean, one of the things I've been thinking about is the fact that, yes, those were for two months, which now feel like they were forever ago, right? They were for like, you know, <laughs> I mean, my, my, they weren't even for June, to be quite honest. And we're still in this holding pattern. So I do wonder what's going to happen this summer, which summer has often traditionally has been very hard for a lot of art entities because people, there aren't a lot of events. People don't spend money. Galleries tend not to have a lot of shows. All these types of things happen. I'm wondering what's going to happen considering we don't even know when things are going to return back to normal. And particularly with the recent announcement about international students, anybody who's gone to an art art school in the last couple of years knows that, you know, international students are not only a huge part of the student body, but they often financially support institutions because of the fact that their fees tend to be higher than others. So how is this going to land? Truth is, we don't know. 
But I'd love to hear any thoughts that either of you might have about the about this bigger issue. I think we're likely going to see uh, demands on behalf of art workers who want to see these institutions break down exactly where the money for these PPP loans went. Murag, you explained it a little bit to us about these institutions that apply are asked to describe exactly where the money is going to go. But in many cases, I would assume that that information was not shared with workers who are very frustrated by the fact that their institutions received millions of dollars in PPP loans, their directors received millions of dollars, and in other cases, hundreds of thousands of dollars, even even those that take 20% pay cuts. And yet dozens of workers were laid off right at the beginning of the time period this summer when the PPP loans somewhat expired, when these when these institutions are legally allowed to lay off and furlough workers again. So I would hope that many of these workers are organizing themselves within their institutions, whether or not they're furloughed or have been laid off, to demand to know exactly where that money went and how it was helping the institutions if it wasn't helping the workers. Definitely. I would add to that, I'm totally in agreement with Jasmine that, you know, in order to have um, the trust of your workers, you have to be transparent about how you're using the money and also to have the trust of taxpayers because these loans were backed by taxpayer dollars. And I think we're seeing a lot of distrust and a lot of uncertainty and a lot of fear about how this money is being used, especially since in the beginning, we saw companies that we know didn't really need this money. Um, receive these loans. And, and I do think that the example of four top galleries getting loans in the millions is, is questionable. If the money isn't used to cover eligible expenses, then that loan is not forgivable. But receiving money at any point in time could be obviously invested into something that yields a profit in the future. So making the loans not forgivable if you don't use it for eligible expenses doesn't necessarily mean that the money won't be misused in other ways by large companies and corporations that shouldn't be receiving it. No, absolutely. I mean, I think I think we're all trying to wrap our head around what this means. And, you know, I would have loved, like, I mean, obviously galleries, I would like to see galleries thrive at the end of the day. I mean, I think they're important for our community and so many people are doing really interesting work. But I think what's happening is there seems to be a disconnect between galleries that, you know, thrive on exclusivity and frankly, contribute to inequality through this type of like pampering of the 1%, appealing to that, you know, uh, creating this whole scene around their own like gallery or the art world, these relationships with museums that end up manipulating. I mean, yes, I use that word, manipulating, you know, who gets shown, how it gets shown, the funding for things, how it sort of gets, uh, you know, used in different ways, even their relationships with curators. As we've seen, curators have favorite galleries and you can often, you know, list the galleries on one hand that a curator will work with most of the time, you know, and so they do have power and they do have these, but then these public loans have sort of been doled out in a way that with no, you know, with no 
meaning like, you know, it would be great if institutions as a result of this agreed to be more open or public or perhaps even more transparent about what it is they're doing, maybe sharing the information with staff or these types of stipulations that could have been put in place. But of course, none of that was done. And the government even hesitated to release this information. So we're in some ways lucky we even got to see this because there was discussion about not releasing any information. And then also, you know, the idea that any company under 500 is a small business is kind of funny, in my opinion. I mean, I think that's sort of, that's not really what a small business is. And as we've seen, not only have the loans been doled out in a disproportionate way, where people of color have certainly not benefited from them, but also smaller businesses, the real, the mom and pop shops and the different kinds of smaller businesses that really do make the lifeblood of communities did not receive the support. And they're still hurting. And we haven't even talked about the fact that student loan forgiveness is, you know, or like the stall is going to be coming up in a few, in a little while, not to mention also rents. And I don't know if many of you saw, but recently it was reported that on July 1st, even though, you know, there's been a lot of tension around rents, it seems like the Urban Institute mentioned nearly 20% of people who rent did not pay in June, which is an incredible number if you think of how not only are renters suffering but people who are renting do you know and you know are clearly going to be uh, affected by this and frankly we don't know where it's going to go and the government has been talking about perhaps new loans um, a new wave of loans but again we we're not even sure and so I do wonder what's going to happen as a result of this and whether this is the last you know spat of layoffs we're going to see for a little while. So Jasmine, I wonder if there are any other stories you'd like to bring up or Valentina, because I know we've been working so hard on all these different stories. And I mean, the SF MoMA story was quite a bomb this week in terms of people were shocked that a senior curator there had departed. And for some people, I think all the reasons why he departed hasn't added up yet. So I wonder if anyone has any other thoughts about some of the stories we've been publishing. So one story that um, we've been engaging with recently, even though it was, this was a story that we published at the end of June about the ICP, which is the International Center of Photography here in New York City. It's a school and a museum. Noah Morrison, a former student, TA, an employee of ICP, was really upset to see several students of the institution sharing images of protests of Black Lives Matter protests where the faces of the protesters were not blurred. And as we know, the advent of facial recognition technology has made it such that it's very easy to identify somebody from these images. And increasingly, we know that law enforcement agencies are using social media to kind of track these people down. So he came out and said, well, the ICP needs to issue proper guidelines on uh, the ethics of protest photography. The ICP did not necessarily issue those guidelines, said they would host series of public talks on the subject, but but that kind of prompted Noah and his group, which is called ICP Center Blackness Now, to open up a larger conversation about inequities in the institution that are similar to the ones that plague 
several other institutions or insufficient representation of a black staff and student body and several other gripes that I think he thought were worth bringing up in the midst of this conversation about protest photography. So we covered that story and the reason we're re-engaging with it a little bit more this week is because in the comments section of the article, which is often a place where very interesting dialogue takes place, the acclaimed photographer Dawood Bey left a comment saying that him as a member of the ICP community, and, and to clarify, Dawood Bey received the ICP Infinity Award. He's lectured several times and had, has had events at the institution. He, he felt the need to um, express some of his opinions about uh, Noah Morrison's calls for the institution to issue these guidelines on protest photography. And he makes the point that ICP in his vision is not the place to have that conversation and that it is not the governing body that should be issuing those standards. I'm just gonna read a quote from Dawood's comment on the article for better context. He says, as far as I know, the ICP as a museum and educational institution is not in the business of setting ethical standards for the use of photographs in print or online. These codes of ethics are mandated by entities such as the National Press Photographers Association and the Associated Press among others. Both state, we do not alter or digitally manipulate the content of a photograph in any way. That would, of course, include, include blurring the subjects at a demonstration or anywhere else. No photographer who blurred the faces of protesters would expect to have those photographs published or to continue to receive these assignments. I've spoken with a number of black and brown working photographers, which Mr. Morrison clearly is not, who agree that blurring the faces of demonstrators makes no sense from the standpoint of publishable photographs, as doing so would cause them to face severe consequences. So Dawood Bey's argument I think is really interesting and adds um, some nuance to this conversation. Noah Morrison did respond to Dawood's comment and he counter-argued that it behooves him to think that the only bodies that need to be concerned with ethics are the NPPA and the Associated Press. And he said, although unsurprisingly, this line of thinking works to further delegitimize the work of anyone who dares to speak up, who does not have a platform you may deem appropriate. And Noah Morrison also pointed out that Dawood Bay is a well-known photographer and that he, that Noah is actually a student and a former teacher and so comes from a completely different perspective and standpoint when speaking about these issues. Noah Morrison says ICP needs absolutely to be among the leaders of that conversation, stemming from its core mission and role as the world's leading institution dedicated to photography and visual culture. And I think Harag and Jasmine, of course, feel free to jump in because this is something we've been talking about in our own newsroom. There's a sense that pushing back against blurring protest photographs comes from a place of maybe romanticizing the idea of protest photography over the years that's deeply entrenched. And with the increasing use of surveillance technology, the conversation needs to shift towards uh, the safety of these protesters. But of course, which organizations should be concerned with this? Which of them should be issuing the guidelines? That is all, I think, very much up for debate. Absolutely. And I think one interesting point is obviously the development of facial recognition technology. Of course, these protests are happening in the middle of a pandemic when so many protesters are wearing masks, which has been a guidance that we've been hearing at the protests that we've been covering for a number of years. But facial recognition has advanced beyond that where we've seen different protesters identified by tattoos and by Etsy reviews and all of these different factors 
which is something that they does acknowledge that blurring faces doesn't necessarily protect the identities of these of these protesters 100%. I think that on the other hand, Morrison's idea that we can push the genre of photojournalism past what we've known it to be now is a very complicated process that will take a lot of thinking through collectively, thinking through as a community, even though ICP is in a newsroom, it does have, of course, a prominent role in the shaping of photography, um, so many genres of photography. And so it does beg the question that as a place of education and as a place of displaying art, like, does it have a necessity to weigh in on this conversation. Um, Bay seems to think that it does not. And I think that it's a really deep and complex scenario that I'm very excited to see photographers continue to discuss in the public forum. I think that's all great points. I mean, I think it. I think there's one of the things, as much as Daoud Bay mentions the one uh, scenario of a protester that was arrested based on a t-shirt and a tattoo, it's actually, let's be very specific though, that that t-shirt was something that it seems that they made themselves, right? And are selling on Etsy. So the case that somebody will be able to be identified by such a specific t-shirt is going to be rare. And we should mention when Hyperallergic took on the idea, the policy of blurring faces of photographers, we also did make the stipulation we were also going to blur tattoos, distinguishable tattoos. So, you know, that was part of our decision. But we've also made the decision that when artists provide photos and would like them reproduced without blurring, we are more than happy to do that. And whenever we have blurred photographs, it has been with the permission of the photographer themselves. So... I, as much as I agree with so many of Dawood's Bay's points, one of the things that, you know, he does make some statements that confuse me a little bit, including this idea that he writes in his comment, conversely, there have been uh, any number of instances where a photojournalist has altered a photograph and suffered serious professional recriminations. And I mean, in that case, though, this isn't the idea of the photographer necessarily blurring them rather than the establishment. So I'm not so sure that there's... Um, that's quite what we're talking about, you know? So I do think like, I think there's a hesitation, which I appreciate. And I think all artists, you know, are going to like, you know, be like, why are you touching my images? But I think we're understanding that photography and image making is not what it was 50 years ago. You know, these photographs are being used for very different purposes. These are not photographs that are sort of being carefully considered. They can be incredibly, possibly incriminating for different reasons, sometimes for reasons that are not intended. There are a lot of different things. And no one's saying anyone should destroy a photograph. People are just saying that they should consider blurring them when circulating them particularly at such crisis times where emotions are high and, you know, and there are serious implications, you know, for sharing images like that. So I, th- I, I, I look forward to this conversation continuing as well. And I do think right now with the pandemic raging and the masks, in many ways, we're in a very unusual, but, you know, fortuitous position when it comes to the protests, because people can mask their faces, um, you know, as just a normal part of everyday life today. So 
I think this is an important issue and I'm so glad that this conversation is continuing. And, you know, I want to give so much respect to Dawood Bey as such a senior figure and great photographer engaging with younger photographers on issues that could very well, like, you know, he didn't need to weigh in on this, right? But he he clearly did this because it comes from the idea of coming from a place that I think of love and a community that he clearly believes in and wants to support in any way he can. So I just want to give kudos to him and thank him for engaging. Absolutely. And I think as reporters, that's the best we can always ask for is for the work that we put out there to provoke these kind of discussions. So thank you, Jasmine. Thank you, Valentina. And we'll continue to keep people up to date about the latest news going on in the arts community during this, I don't know what to call it, but during this (laughs) pandemic period. (laughs) So thank you both. Thank you both so much. Thank you. The music for this episode is titled The One by The Waves. I'm Hrag Vartanian, the editor-in-chief and co-founder of Hyperallergic. Thanks for listening, and stay safe. You're not the one, the one I used to sing with, dancing through the night, skinny dipping in the lake, and the one I used to ride with, smoke a little from the Porsche and get high with. She's the closest thing to love, screaming every night at the top of my lungs. Maybe I'm just scared.